it makes no difference how much you give or do. What makes the difference is you did something and you gave something. If every person could wake up and just do a little bit more good in the world, could you imagine how this world would be? It would be absolutely wonderful. Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. We are finding that putting people first and delivering results are not two separate goals. So says my guest today, Donato Tramuto, a fellow Italian with whom I bonded right away, author of the book, The Double Bottom Line, How Compassionate Leaders Captivate Hearts and Deliver Results. Donato is a global health activist, former CEO of Tivity Health, and founder of the Tramuto Foundation and Health E-Villages. He was the recipient of the prestigious Robert F. Kennedy Ripple of Hope Award in 2014, alongside Hillary Clinton, Robert De Niro, and Tony Bennett, and the 2017 Robert F. Kennedy Embracing His Legacy Award. Today, we talk about the case for compassionate leadership and how to achieve it. We discussed so much in this very poignant and passionate interview, where we each shared some very personal stories. Donato talks about how his childhood hearing loss and bullying shaped his compassionate character, how he doubled down on purpose and people after experiencing profound loss on 9-11, and how he has tailored his prestigious career to focus on people and connection first in order to lead to performance and profit. Donato shares the definition of compassionate leadership, how it shows up in action, and why we must update key roles in the organization, such as the CEO, HR, and why much of that starts with the board itself. We speak about what Gen Z and millennials bring to the workplace and a new practice he calls collaboration. This interview will be all the proof you need that the most successful leaders lead with compassion, not ego. So many profound gems you will wanna write down and keep by your workspace. Enjoy. Let's get connected. If you're loving this content, don't forget to go to theempathyedge.com and sign up for the email list to get free resources and more empathy-infused success tips and find out how you can book me as a speaker. I want to hear how empathy is helping you be more successful. So please sign up now at theempathyedge.com. Oh, and follow me on Instagram, where I'm always posting all the things for you at Red Slice Maria. Hello, Donato, and welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast. I am so excited to talk to you about compassionate leadership today. Oh, thank you for having me, Maria. 
So tell us a little bit about your story. I know your book came out, The Double Bottom Line, How Compassionate Leaders Captivate Hearts and Deliver Results, which is a phenomenal title. Um, It just came out. And uh, we would love to hear a little bit about how you got to this space. Well, first of all, thank you for asking that question, because that's one of the underlying questions that we found in the compassionate leaders who we interviewed, that they always take the time to ask tell me your story. And I have a notion, nobody cares what you do until they know why you do it. Uh, so a little bit about my story. I lost my uh, most of my hearing at age eight. And for about 10 years, I had limited to no hearing. And of course, you can only imagine what that, um, um, what that did to me. I was bullied. I failed the fifth grade. I had a twin brother who was very athletic. And as I always say, the the most athletic ability I had is I jumped to conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think the pain of those years really taught me the value of connecting with people. And there were times when I connected with people and I had no voice. I had to connect with you know different senses. But it did teach me how to be compassionate. Uh, my hearing was restored in you know, 1972, and my sister-in-law, who was my speech pathologist, who really gets the credit for the fluency that I have here today, she died in childbirth three months. Oh my after, goodness! Three months after my hearing had been restored, and four years after my older brother had lost his life in a car accident. So I think those challenges taught me to be a kinder. Um, more compassionate individual. But when I got into the workforce, I didn't see that at all. And that's why I really thought that there was a need for this, uh, this book. Well, clearly your experiences in childhood shaped your character, which you brought forth into your leadership and your career has been stunning. I mean, the fact that you have been a CEO, I think more than once. Yes. Yes. And so tell us about what you're doing now with Tivity Health. And also, you know, you founded the Tremuto mm-hmm. Foundation and Health E-Villages. What are you bringing to all of those organizations because of your philosophy around compassionate leadership? Well, first of all, and I mentioned this in the book, um, you rent your title, you own your dignity. And I regardless- love that. Regardless of what title I have had, now I retired from Tivity two years ago. I uh, had been uh, in conversations to step down after um, seven very, very successful years. Uh, Part of that was as a board chair, and then I moved into the CEO role. But I have never looked at my life by the title that I have. I've looked at my life by the purpose and the meaning and the problems that have to be solved. And so the Tremuto Porter Foundation was launched in 2001. I gave you the introductory of some of the challenges that I had in my life. Perhaps the most significant uh, loss in my life was 9-11. I was uh, scheduled to be on that uh, second plane that hit the South Tower, United Flight 175. Oh, wow. But because of a toothache the day before, I went to see my dentist that was near the Boston airport. And I said, okay, I'm going to go out Monday night. But my two friends and their three-year-old, I could not convince them to go out with me Monday night. Mm. They went out Tuesday and I lost my um, 
you know, my three very dear friends, uh, mm-hmm. the three-year-old boy and their parents. And so that had a profound change in my life that perhaps I was more um, compassionate after that. I think I was compassionate before that, but I became more conscious of the time that we have left and the value of doing good things for other people. And so we launched the Tremuto Porter Foundation. 10 years later, we launched Healthy Villages. So we have two not-for-profits that I have now uh, devoted my time to, but I'm also keeping my uh, self-involved in healthcare. I'm on nine different boards. Um, and so I am still using the skills that I practice for 40 years as a CEO and as an executive in helping other uh, CEOs achieve uh, what they want to achieve. My last point on this is that when we did this book, what was validating to me was that I was able to look back at my life and say, you really did live the definition of compassionate leadership, which is empathy in action. Mm-hmm. Something wrong when I could have left the 9-11 event angry. I could have had hatred in my heart, and I don't think anybody would have faulted me for that. I didn't do that. I channeled a bad situation into doing good. And that's mm-hmm. what compassionate leadership really is. Uh, so many things about your story resonate for me. And number one, I just want to thank you for sharing that with us. Um, but you know, my, my history is that I almost died from a brain aneurysm in 2008. And I wrote a book that many of my listeners know about called rebooting my brain. And out of that experience, I had already had a bent towards, towards trying to do good and and live by my purpose and, and have an impact, but it got accelerated sort of like you through the experience that I had. And I will tell you that sometimes that catalyst can be can be scary because I almost went after doing good with a vengeance out of guilt for surviving. You know what I mean? And I remember one of my therapists telling me, or one of my friends telling me, I can't remember who it was. Um, you know, you don't have to do penance because you, you (laughs) went through this experience. And so I, I throttled it back and directed it in a much more productive way and ended up as, as well as brand strategy, speaking at healthcare conferences and being able to represent the patient point of view to doctors and clinicians. And to your point, you know, using the skills you already have to fulfill a greater purpose and to have impact. So I just want to say, I feel a kindred spirit with you already on, on what crisis can do to you and how it, it can catalyze you. And I always speak to people and especially in my book that like, don't wait, you know, life is short. It's, there's no dress rehearsal. And also don't wait to do good. So it's funny, first of all, before I get to that, um, how are you doing now? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. I had another brain surgery a couple of years ago, but I'm good. Thank you for asking. (laughs) I mentioned this in the book is that I measure my life now by how many summers I have left. I think I have 20 summers left. That's not a lot. Next year it's 19. And so it makes no difference how much you give or do, what makes the difference is you did something and you gave something. And even when I didn't have the position I have today financially, I still did things that helped people. And so this notion that some people will say, well, you know, you you earned a good living and you were able to accumulate. Yeah. Now you can be a philanthropist because you have money, right? It's Anyone can be a philanthropist. <laughs> 
if every person could wake up and just do a little bit more good in the world, could you imagine how this world would be? It would be absolutely wonderful. I think that every day, Donato, that is actually my, my mantra of um, years ago, I had this idea, which might come to fruition someday to do a $1 difference um, nonprofit where you just, you just, you, you supercharge a group of people to just give $1 each to some cause and imagine what you can do collectively and the impact you can have. So maybe you and I will talk offline of this interview on maybe bringing that to fruition someday, but I want to get to the book because so much of what we're talking is about is compassionate leadership. It's also living with purpose. And so why don't we define for folks this new model of compassionate leadership? I talk about it in the book, the empathy edge. And to your point that you made earlier, compassion, how I define it in the book is empathy in action. You can feel empathy and have an empathetic mindset when you are compassionate is when you take the action on it and use that information. So tell us how you define compassionate leadership. Well, that's exactly the definition that we, uh, we extracted after interviewing the 40 leaders. And what was very interesting about the book is that I didn't want it to be according to Donato. And so I purposely interviewed 40 plus, you know, leaders. But then we also did a survey of 1,500 individuals across the United States. And without question, compassionate leadership was defined as empathy in action. Now, I'm a firm believer. In order to understand the positive, you need to understand the negative. So let's just look what's going on right now with the Russian invasion upon Ukraine. You have one president. President Zelensky, who has demonstrated compassionate leadership, who has committed himself to delivering what he promised to his people and putting the people first. That's empathy. On the other hand, you have a leader that has not shown empathy, bombing a hospital with innocent children and pregnant women, and then continuing that type of atrocities is not empathy. And what we learned out of the book is when you lack empathy, you lose the ability to adapt your approach because mm -hmm. you're further than your own point of view. Right. Your own agenda is what you're thinking <laughs> about. Yeah. Look at President Zelensky. He's already willing to say, I will not join NATO. I mean, he's, he's coming up with these, you know, ideas that's going to save his people. That's what compassionate leadership is, is understanding mm -hmm. that it's very funny. I saw here today, they had shown a picture of President Zelensky before the war began. And I don't know if you saw the picture of him today, is that the stress that has hit him has been so remarkable. And people often ask me, when and how do you know you're compassionate? And I often will say, when you can feel the pain of others. Mm. That's when you know you're compassionate. When you can mm -hmm. really feel, and there's no question when you see his picture today, he is living right. and experiencing the pain of his people. So I have a follow on question to that. Given the work that you did for the book, I want to get to maybe one of the most surprising or insightful things you learned from all the amazing leaders you spoke to. But before we get to that, I want to talk about what the question I get a lot on that is how do you? be a compassionate leader and not lose yourself in the process and not grind yourself down to the bone. Any perspective on that? 
I'm glad you asked that question. We talk about uh, avoiding empathy overload. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is why I introduce what I call the three T concept to avoid that. The first T is to show tenderness, to get the trust, and then be tenacious. You can't just always show tenderness. You have to make some tough decisions along the way. I have mm -hmm. had decisions. However, too many leaders start off with tenacity, and then they have to go around with a pooper scooper because they don't have the trust. <laughs> and right. what, we, what we introduce is if you can, you know, I love the way you started the interview or the discussion here today. Donato, tell me about your story. That's a great way of getting trust is really hearing what that individual, and by the way, we talk about under, we talk about listening to understand. Don't listen to respond. Yes. Active listening is about not just listening for when it's your turn to talk. Well, it's actually hearing what someone's saying and potentially adapting what you're going to say. Well, and this happened last week at a dinner party. When I have a dinner party at my home, I always jot down one or two questions on a piece of paper. And I, I ask, love it because <laughs> I really want people to understand and learn and demonstrate tolerance. Last Saturday, I asked the question of which famous person would you have wanted to be in their you know, body and why? Well, somebody gave a political leader that somebody at the table wasn't happy with. Mm -hmm. And that person just attacked the other individual. And they didn't give that person a chance to finish their why. And that's what's happening today. We have trust decay occurring in our society. And I think the more we take the time to listen and show empathy first, then you can move along that food chain mm -hmm. and that getting the trust. And then being able, I don't like the word feedback, being able to give constructive insight. And yes. when I have done that and the other person will come back and say, right. well, you're not being nice. And I'll say, time out. I started off for many months learning about your life and, and, and embracing your likes and dislikes. Well, now we have to have a trustful relationship that there are going to be moments when you will want me because I'm coming from a good place of knowing you, you're going to want me to share with you your performance is not up to mm -hmm. speed. Mm -hmm. So compassionate leadership has to be a two-way street. Absolutely. And, you know, this is the thing I always talk about in my talks on the show is that empathy is not agreeing with people. It actually, you have to be empathetic in the face of disagreeing with someone because it's about finding common ground and seeing common humanity. And I have spoken ad nauseum about Edwin Rutsch, who runs an organization called the Center I always get it wrong. The culture of empathy is the website, but he does trainings for people all over the world on empathy circles and how to facilitate empathy circles. And my loyal listeners, I know you've heard me say this a million times. I'm going to say it again. Check it out. He does it for free. He wow. has trained people all over the world on this facilitation technique, which I went through. It's very intensive and it literally isolates your active listening muscle to the point that if you are a listener like me, where I like to reflect back and keep, and not reflect back, but I like to keep asking probing questions and keeping the conversation going, it forces you to shut up. It forces you to not discern, not judge, not probe, but just repeat back what you heard the person say. 
Mm. whether you agree with it or not. And he has done this technique at the most divisive political rallies in our country over the last few years. And he has gotten people from opposite sides of the aisle to hug each other at the end. They don't agree with each other politically, but they see each other as human. That's no argument has ever been won by calling somebody stupid, you're an idiot, (laughs) or, you know, slapping them on the face. That's a really lame way to have an argument. That's like when you've got nothing left, right? (laughs) Well, I love this, you know, and this is really the culture that we're trying to create is that Mm -hmm. you can make, listen, as a CEO, I was a CEO of a public company. I made some tough decisions. Mm -hmm. However, I always felt that I made the decision with enormous amount of insight. And by the way, when you lack empathy, you become closed circuited. Totally. We're seeing seeing this play out on the world stage. Mm -hmm. So this does work. And I do believe at the end of the day, you feel better because a lot of people ask me, well, you know, Donato, what's really in it for me? Right. I'll tell you what's in it for you. You go home feeling better. Right. I give an example in the book that I was having an executive call and I was on a plane that airplane doors had not shut. And this one executive was getting very aggressive on the conference call. And I tried to use the tenderness first. Mm-hmm. So I tried it three times. Mm-hmm. I finally had to say, so-and-so, uh, please stop. Mm-hmm. When the airplane doors closed, mm-hmm. part of compassionate leadership is doing self-reflection. I reflected mm-hmm. on what I just did. Mm-hmm. And I felt bad. When that plane landed, you know what I did? I reached out for that executive and I apologized. She then apologized to me, and we both teared up on the phone. You know how I felt? I felt better. I was not going to go home. Right. That situation, you know, in the back of my mind, mm-hmm. breaking bread with my family would not have been meaningful, but mm-hmm. I showed compassion. I was the first one. I could have said, I'm the CEO. You should be apologizing to me. No. Right. I, I started the apology and immediately she came back and said, I was wrong. Well, that's why that's because you were seeing things from her point of view. And a good friend of mine always talks about ego kills empathy because you're so ingrained in your point of view and that you're right. And the other person is wrong. So the fact that you were even thinking about, you felt bad because what you thought the other person felt that's empathy right there. And as for, you know, what's in it for you, that was exactly why I wrote the book. My book is an entire business case, bottom line numbers, dollars and cents, euros, (laughs) euros, <laughs> whatever, on why being an empathetic leader pays off, why it actually is a competitive advantage. And I did that specifically to give skeptics empathy, to meet them where they were and say, okay, I get that the moral, like the feeling better about myself or that it's like the right thing to do isn't swaying you. <laughs> So what will what will sway you from your point of view? Oh, looking at all the benefits to your organization and to your engagement, your innovation, your customer loyalty, your word of mouth, on and on and on and on. So I love that example because that is that is empathy in action when you can and compassionate leadership when you can you can stow your ego for a second in pursuit of repairing the relationship and moving forward. I think that's the long game. Absolutely. And, you know, it has to begin with the board and, you know, un, you know, unfortunately boards are made up a lot of what I call, you know, focus on financials. Mm-hmm. And they don't ask enough about the culture. Uh, they don't get into understanding enough about the management team. 
And so we have to really, you know, undo what is these old families. By the way, in the book we talk about, there's five generations now that make up the workforce. Yes, it's the most intergenerational workforce we've ever experienced. However, the average age for a CEO is 59 years old. By the way, that's the same age in Washington for the elected officials. And so Mm -hmm. those individuals were trained by individuals in the 60s and 70s. And so we have got to wake up and understand what the millennials and the Gen Z, what they're asking for. Mm -hmm. And they're not asking for just profit. They They know that you have to be profitable. They're asking for more. They're asking for purpose. And we've talked about that many times on this show and in the book too, is that they are actually asking questions about organizations before they join that I myself as a Gen Xer never asked. They want to know how they treat employees, how they treat customers, how they treat the supply chain, right? They care about what's, and as consumers, this is exactly who they are as well. They care about what's under the hood. They don't just care about your product or service. And I can speak for myself. When I was 17, I didn't think about those questions. (laughs) But I'm so happy you're bringing this up because we are no longer going to have, you know, I was fortunate um, in my lifetime that I had heroes that really uh, moved me, whether it be Dr. King, uh, whether it was, you know, the, you know, Robert Kennedy or the Dalai Lama. It's not going to be one person anymore mm-hmm. that carries the torch. It's going to be the people. And that's what I am so impressed with. Yeah. The younger generation. I'll leave you with this story because I know you'll love it. My niece recently was applying for an HR coordinator job, just graduated from college. Mm-hmm. She made it through all the interviews and, you know, she looked at the job description. She said, this does not require a in-office setting. So she has her last interview with HR and they said, we really want to hire you. And my niece said, well, I need to be upfront with you. I have reviewed the job. It doesn't need to be done in an office. I will take it if I can do it at my location. And I was pleased the way the HR person responded. First of all, I was pleased that my niece. But she asked. Yes. And then the HR person said, she said, you're the first person that has been transparent. We'll work with you no matter where you want to that is the leader right to understand go ahead no no i was i just i'm so excited by what you said because um also that you know this notion of people you know grumbling older people grumbling about gen z and millennials and you know even folks i know we working with younger generations but i always say more power to them because a rising tide lifts all boats they are making the workplace better for all of us by really finally understanding, look, this is where I spend the bulk of my time. I want it to be a place where I feel seen, heard, and valued. And I want to be able to do work that matters. That benefits everyone from the person about to retire to the person that's it's their first job. You're exactly right. And, and I think, listen, you know, the pandemic has put this notion of compassionate leadership, you know, on steroids. Mm-hmm. But, you know, let's be honest, before the pandemic, we were beginning to see. It was cracking open. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have I have so many questions about aspects of the book. So first of all, I want to talk about, um, you know, you interviewed over nearly 40 successful leaders who practice compassionate leadership. What was a what was an insight or a big aha or something surprising that you learned? Can you share a story for us? 
Yeah, I think there were, you know, multiple, you know, stories that I think resonate uh, with me. But I, you know, I think the one that I really recall was by Senator Elizabeth Warren, who had a very different notion of people that were applying, uh, applying for bankruptcy. She had a notion that, hey, wait a second, I grew up in a family where we had it tough. But my mother and father found ways to really avoid losing my home. And she said she carried that notion, you know, as, you know, you know, a professional that, hey, I, my family did it, you should do it. Mm -hmm. So she started to get involved in bankruptcy cases. And she started to hear, wait a second, I lost my home because I had no health insurance. And they took my home so that my wife could survive her cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. And it became a wake up call that she had never actually gotten into the shoes to Mm -hmm. feel the pain of someone else which changed her whole notion when she became a elected official of how she fought to protect the, you know, you know, rights and the material possessions of people that were filing for bankruptcy. And I thought that that was really a very courageous and, you know, we write about it in the book and right. you know, we, we highlight her story, but that really does resonate with me that mm-hmm. you really don't understand. I have this notion, Maria, and I have, share this with a lot of my executives on my team. When you wake up every day, keep this in the back of your mind. Someone else has it probably worse than you do. And if you keep that in the back of your mind, you will take the time to hear the story. And I remember one time when I was CEO at Tivity, I never took the executive elevator. I always made sure I got on the employee. The only time I would do it if I had a confidential conference call. I just think, can I just interject? I think it's so funny that there even was an executive yeah. elevator. <laughs> Hopefully that's gone now, but yeah. <laughs> and, and primarily it's times when you're on a conference call, right? You you would have to, but I always try to use the employee elevator. And one time it was 6.30 in the morning and this employee got on and uh, I asked, tell me about your night and your day. I never asked how you're doing. That's too easy. And all of a sudden he started to break down and cry. He said, "Um, I lost my uncle. I lost my two aunts in this Iraq war. They were killed in ambush. And I'm listening to this. He said, my mother has no place to go. Oh my goodness. Come to my office. Came to my office. I established a fund for him immediately and his family. We then put it out to the company. And within 24 hours, we had shipment of goods going to his family in Iraq. And so my point is that you have to really ask the questions that's going to allow you to understand the other person's pain. Now, I could have gone in the elevator and said, and by the way, it was earnings day. So mm-hmm. I could have gone in that elevator and said, you know, I don't have time for anything today. This is an earnings call. I have to get ready. But I took the time to really understand mm-hmm. you know, what they were experiencing. So you also talk about some specifics in the workplace, um, the fact that we need to update key roles in organizations to align with compassionate leaders. How can we update those key roles, human resources, CEOs, and boards of directors? Well, number one, we have become too technology focused. As you know, if you have technology skills and you're an innovator, that seems to get you know the attention of the day. That shouldn't go away. I introduce a new word in the book, and it's collaboration. 
that we've got to increase. And by the way, what we found in the compassionate leadership ingredients as we tore it apart, you have got to increase your cooperation. You've got to increase the collaboration and communication in the company. And what do we hear employees say most? They believe that compassionate leadership leads to more collaborative organization. Mm -hmm. But when we re-interview them in terms of, is the organization more competitive than collaborative? It was like 75% said it's more competitive. Mm -hmm. So we've got to, you know, you know, review how we lessen the competitiveness in the organization, save the competitiveness for your, your outside world. Mm -hmm. But we have to train leaders how to be more collaborative, how mm -hmm. to be more communicative. You can't just say it once. You've got to say it four or five times. Mm -hmm. The other thing, my favorite philosopher, Yogi Berra, once said, you don't want to make the wrong mistake. And I think too many leaders, they announce this great vision and mission and values, and that's it. They don't go yep. around and, and, and validate whether it is, in fact, taking place. Yeah. Is, is it sticking? What I say is no longer does culture eat strategy for lunch? Throw that playbook out. Trust eats culture and strategy every single day. And the only way you get the trust, if you go into the organization and invite people into a conversation, mm -hmm. as opposed to waiting for people to come to you. Case mm -hmm. in point, here I am trying to strive to be a compassionate leader. And in 2018, in my organization, I had this feeling that employees were being bullied, despite the fact that my team had a coach. We were training them how to be more compassionate. And I gave my cell phone to all 1,500 employees. You know, about 100 called me. Some were nervous when they had, you know, placed the first call. Mm -hmm. And they shared with me stories of how the organization was not compassionate, mm -hmm. that it was more bullying than compassionate, despite the fact mm -hmm. that you had a CEO who believed in this. And so you've got to validate and check and not think that your executives mm -hmm. are doing what you believe they have told you they will do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's all about, you know, this is, I work with my brand clients on this a lot. It's about, it's not the brand veneer. It's how you brand from the inside out. And so, and which I talked about this in the empathy edge, if you want to be an empathetic organization, an empathetic brand that has to start with, well, how are you operationalizing empathy? It can't just be a poster on your wall that says we're an empathetic organization. It's what are our policies? What are our reward structures? How are we hiring? How do we recognize people? How do we acknowledge people? We have to put our money where our mouth is. And it can't just be the CEO saying we are a compassionate organization. It's actually got to be embedded in the infrastructure and the policies and the practices of the organization. What well stated. And one of the things you asked how HR can change. HR, yes. HR has got to move from a technical department to a strategic department. Mm -hmm. And we work with HR and one of the programs that we installed following that survey is a program that we called the Ask Me Anything call. That each week we would put an email out about the low lights and the highlights. HR would put out what we call Tiny Pulse, 
they would ask a question of the entire organization. And we used the ask me anything call on Friday and 90% of the organization showed up. They can ask anything about that survey of the tiny pulse and they can ask anything about the lowlights and the highlights and they did not have to use their name. Mm -hmm. Talk about transparency, talk about communication and talk about the way we would answer the questions so that we could model to the other executives that it was okay to have a transparent conversation. Yeah, it's not to be, it's one of the markers of an empathetic brand in my book I talk about is accepting feedback as a gift, not being defensive about it, but using it as information, using it as input. We, we, we throw the word feedback out. We, we mm-hmm. call it constructive insights. There you go. I love it. But uh, something you said was especially compelling to me about, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of HR consultants and consultancies, and for years, they've been trying to be seen as strategic and not just, we're the group that does your benefits and your paycheck. They're actually a strategic lever for growth and success in an organization. And it is refreshing to me to hear a multi-time CEO agreeing with that statement. Because unfortunately, I think so many CEOs see HR as a function and HR doesn't have a, a, a seat at the strategic table, at the executive table, not just on how are we going to update our benefits this year, right? How are we going to, what's, what's going on with recruiting? What's going on with hiring? But proactively, what can we do to build a culture that makes us competitive, that's a, that attracts and retains the top talent and, and creates a space where innovation can thrive? So tell us a little bit more about how you got to that. How did you well, connect those dots? Well, it has to start at the board. Mm-hmm. And you talked about changing the role of the board as well. Yeah. So I can't reemphasize that. Now, I was fortunate. I was chairman of the board in 2014 following an activist suit. And so I set the expectations at the board. I made sure that there were culture discussions. I made sure that we had a overview of the executives, you know, where their strengths and developments. It has to begin at the board. And if it doesn't start there, then quite frankly, it will not cascade down. And the way the board treats the managers that too many board, you know, members approach their role by, you know, catching people doing things wrong. Mm. We've got to change that notion that mm-hmm. the board members are there. And I always use this line. They're there not to put their fingers in the organization, but they have to have their nose in the organization. They have to have enough insights. And do you know, I had a policy that the board could call any of my people at any time. And I had many of my executives who were shocked by that. And I said, there's nothing that I feel uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. If there is, then I shouldn't be the CEO of the company. The board had a responsibility to respect that as well. If they were reaching out to people just to you know, create havoc, and some did. Mm-hmm. They, they just wanted to create havoc. That's not a good relationship. If the CEO says, I have no issue with you reaching out to my people, then it should be done in a way that is insightful and not destructive. And that's where we have to retrain the board to Mm -hmm. be insightful and not necessarily approach their role as this entity that doesn't trust the organization. So once you get that going, then there's an enormous amount of cascading down to the executive team because they're watching not only you, 
they're watching the board operate in the same manner. Yes. Yes. In the same manner. All right. So much good stuff. And I really want people to check out the book, the double bottom line. But as we wrap up, I really want to ask this question about what you had in the book. What are the five practices for turning listening into understanding? Because I think all of us intellectually know we should be better active listeners, but how do we hear, how do we listen better so that we can do something with that information? What are the five practices? Yeah, I already gave you one, and that was that uh, you have to listen to understand. That when I had meetings with individuals, I did not have my cell phone around. Uh, my cell phone was pushed to the side. By the way, I never had an executive meeting where you could use your cell phone. And there would be a lot of arguments with me on that. They would say, I have a customer. I said, well, I'm the CEO of the organization. And if I can put my phone down, the customer can wait until we're done. Yeah. You have to then, you know, repeat back. And maybe this is something that I do because of my loss of hearing. I don't always get the information. You know, hearing aids don't help you in the way that, you know, people think they do. And so repeat back, get the clarity, show, you know, through your nonverbal that you care. You know, if you're listening to somebody, you repeat back like a parrot, that's not showing caring. (laughs) To really repeat back in a way that shows... You truly understand the pain. Right. And I think the other I always did was to ask them, give me one recommendation about what I can do better in our relationship. And they would always start off with, no, you're, I said, no, no, I'm not great. <laughs> I said, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear what I can do better. And the last but not least is that you must follow up. I have written in my lifetime more than 10,000 thank you cards. After the conversation, if it was a very meaningful, important dialogue, I wrote a card back so that they understood. I had this one employee that said at Tiffany, I have received five cards from you in the year that I've been here. I never received one in the 10 years that I was at my last company. Wow. Back to that, that, that sense that I am listening to you. Right. And that they, and that they are seen. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So much good stuff. Well, I could talk to you for another few hours and maybe we will outside of this interview, but uh, I just want to remind people of the book, the double bottom line, how compassionate leaders captivate hearts and deliver results from fast company press. It's uh, it's been out since April and, uh, We are so excited to have you share all your insights in this condensed period of time, but go ahead and check out the book. Thank you, Donato, for being here and sharing your insights. Thank you, Medea, and uh, you are amazing. And I'm so happy that um, your healthcare situation has has really come to a point where you're, you're doing well. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed it, please share it. Please rate and review. Let us know your feedback. That always helps. And never forget until our next time together that cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. Please take care and be kind. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. 
For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success. Tremendous success.